Charles Woodson, Desmond Howard, Denard Robinson, Timonga Bianca Batuka, from Yost to Arbaugh, passed down from generation to generation, Michigan football has stood the test of time. What's that feeling you get when you catch your first glimpse of the big house? When you hear, and take the field. When you see the team emerge from the tunnel, sprint across the field, and touch that famed M-Go Blue banner. Saturdays in the fall, tailgates with friends and family, favorite players, favorite teams, and unforgettable moments. A lifetime of memories. College football in 2020 may be unique, but it has arrived at the corner of Stadium and Main, which is where you can find Michael Spath and Justin Rowe sharing their analysis, their stories, and their emotions about this year's Wolverine. Welcome back to this Stadium in Maine podcast. I am Justin Rowe. I am joined today by Michael Spath and our special guest, former Michigan defensive end, Will Heiniger. It is Victory Sunday, guys. It's October 25th, and Michigan defeated Minnesota last night in a pretty, uh, pretty big fashion. So how's everybody doing out there uh, this morning? Well, I mean, I'm doing terrific. I mean, yesterday was kind of like the – uh, best case scenario uh, for a Michigan fan, the way that the day started. Um, then you had the big upset uh, in, uh, in, in Bloomington uh, with Indiana in, in a game we'll talk about um, in a little bit here because it was one of the most dramatic, most exciting, and most unique endings to a game that I have ever seen in my life. Um, and so, I mean, no hyperbole there either. Uh, so I was really impressed with that. But my goodness, Michigan – all week, Justin, you and I have been talking about what we wanted to see. I wanted to see Michigan win this game with offense, and I know our guest, Will Heinegger, is going to, like, cringe as I say that as a defensive lineman. But I wanted to see Michigan go out there, put their foot on the gas, and just say every opportunity that we have to score, we're going to put points on the board. Um, the crazy thing is they missed two field goals when they had a chance to, to put up six more. But Joel Milton was outstanding. Uh, we'll get into that on the podcast, but just really, really happy. This was – to me, this is the best opening game performance of the Jim Harbaugh era so far. Um, you go back in 2017 when they played Florida down in Dallas, uh, and they were the better team on that day and looked really good. But this was a Minnesota team that, you know, supposed to be a favorite in the West, is a top 25 team, had a really good year, uh, you know, a season ago, 11-2, and two, um, you know, that was missing a couple of players but was supposed to really test this Michigan team. And other than the first couple of minutes where you had the block pun and, and, and Michigan fell behind 7 nothing. I mean, the Wolverines were in absolute control of this game from, you know, probably minute, whatever, six to minute uh, 60 of this one. So I was really excited, really happy. Will, former player, you watched this game through a different lens than the rest of us. What were your impressions of week one? Yeah, first of all, I'm doing great as you guys are. Always awesome to come off a Michigan victory, um, especially to open the season. As you said, we will touch on some of the other games. All I will say for now is I am glad that I am not a Penn State fan or have no affinity <laughs> for Penn State because that was pretty wild. But, uh, yeah, the one that we care about most, my goodness, that was a great start. Um, you mentioned the opener in Dallas, Mike, and I thought to myself, you know, you go back and look at that 2017 roster for us and how many guys are playing on Sundays right now from that team, and it kind of makes sense why we were as impressive and dominant as we were. And I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but if you watch yesterday and then I rewatch some of it as well, I think in two or three years and you look back and say, oh, that 2020 team, like there's a reason they were pretty dominant because mm -hmm. we were fundamentally, I'm not going to say perfect, but we were very, very impressive, especially for a season opener. Um, and then to have, what did we lose? Four linemen to, uh, to the NFL yep. last year and just to pick up like that and, and move people off the ball and on, on poles and on, on different running plays to still square up blocks. It was just, it was awesome to see. It was beautiful. Yeah, Justin, I mean, all week, I mean, it, it's pretty funny. I, I think my prediction was 42-28 for the game uh, on Friday. And then I watched Big Ten action and I watched, you know, some lower scoring games in the first, you know, the first, whoever it was, five or six games of, of Saturday. 
and I changed my opinion. I'm like, all right, maybe the Big Ten's not going to follow the rest of college football and just be balls out offense. And so I, I, I took my pick down a little bit, Justin. Big you mistake. Stuck with because, your gut. Yeah, because Michigan was all about the offense. Uh, how excited were you uh, to, to see the way that that game unfolded and how they, you know, how they just kept on attacking, attacking, attacking? I haven't seen a Michigan football team be that explosive on the offensive side in a long time. And so even, even if you go back a couple of years when, you know, I think about Michigan, how they dominated Penn State and Wisconsin in 2018 and a couple other games, they were doing it by time of possession. They were still, you know, kind of really slowly getting to that 42 points, 40, whatever you want to say. Um, but Michigan used about every weapon they have on offense and they really did it in an electric way. And the first quarter was about as electric as it gets for both teams. It was really back and forth. And then it was just, it, it Michigan took over. And so for them, it, it was very exciting as a Michigan fan to watch some, some of the up-tempo stuff that we haven't seen since Denard Robinson really, um, you know, back in 2012. Well, I, I think the thing too is, is, you know, beating this drum. Um, what I, what I said all week and what I've been saying for, for months now is, is if you, if Joe Milton is a physical specimen and we know he is, you have to use him as a weapon. He can no longer like Michigan's got to move past the point where it's quarterbacks are game managers. They've got to do what Rick Trot honestly was trying to do with Denard um, back in, uh, you know, 2010 and like just turn this guy loose and let him be the best player on the field. And, you know, I know that his numbers were not huge yesterday, um, but I thought that Joe Milton offensively, uh, and, and, and if not for Michael Barrett, and we'll get to that in a little bit, defensively, he was the best player on the field for, for Michigan. You don't have the Eric all drop. Um, I know the next play, you got a 27-yard game, but if you don't have that drop, he catches the touchdown. Ronnie Bell doesn't fall down uh, and then doing his best Daniel Jones impersonation. <laughs> you know, Joe Milton finishes with 240 yards, three touchdowns, 67% on his, on his uh, you know, pass attempts, uh, also rushes for a touchdown and 50 yards. And you look at that and you go, Justin Fields, Graham Mertz, Joe Milton, look at these three performances. Right now everybody's kind of talking about Graham Mertz and Justin Fields for good reason, but Joe Milton's name would be right there in that conversation. Uh, and, and so I think that speaks to the type of performance that he had. Will, take us through it. I mean, you've been around, uh, you've been around Denard, you've been around Devin Gardner, uh, you know, you, you joined the team back in, you know, those, those early, the, the, I think the, your first year was the, the last year of Chad Henney. So you've yep. been around some really good quarterbacks and I don't want to sit there and start comparing him to the greats, right? I mean, it's one game, sure. but I saw a lot of really positive things from Joe Milton. Definitely. So the first thing um, that just stands out is the size. You know, I think he is the biggest quarterback that I rem I'm thinking through um, he would be a little bigger than three was. So I, it would have been Mallet. I mean, and Mallet wasn't necessarily a, uh, a dual threat, if you will. So having a guy who's 6'5 and 240 playing quarterback, like, first of all, there's just something that, you know, physically sets the tone there. Um, when you can, as you said, Mike, use him as a weapon, um, not be afraid of, you know, we got to kick this guy in bubble wrap or he's going to get hurt. And that doesn't mean we have to run him 25 times a game. But when the defense has to prepare and account for a quarterback who is 6'5", 240, and can leave the entire defense behind, like, that's a problem, period. Um, there's a numbers problem from the defense. You get an extra blocker, as we know. Uh, but also, there's a physicality and a sort of getting worn down factor that can happen. To, I think we saw in the second half as things really started to uh, get going on the scoreboard for us. And as you said, it was, it was all directed by Joe Milton. So I agree we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Um, it was incredibly promising. It's also – it's not like he had receivers that had the most experience in the world. I really like our receivers. I was on the group chat with the former players last night, and guys were talking about the speed at skill positions and how it, it looks like we have more than we have in a long time that we remember – um, but it wasn't like a lot of those guys were super experienced aside from Ronnie Bell uh, or had mm -hmm. much playing time at all. So that's incredibly promising to put up the performance that, that Joe Milton did um, with the 
talented yet inexperienced receiver skill group guys that he had. Uh, can't wait to see what we do next week against you know who. Yeah, and, and Justin too. I mean, here's the thing about Milton's game yesterday is he probably has, um, you know, maybe two or three passes he'd like back. He threw one over the middle into tight coverage that, you know, got knocked down. I don't know that it was going to get picked off, but it got knocked down. Uh, the pass to Giles Jackson um, when he was on a post pattern, I mean, it, it probably should have been a touchdown. I think that was in the third quarter. Uh, Joe waited a little bit too long. Then he threw on the run in what was, I mean, a rope of a throw running across your body uh, and just led Giles Jackson a little bit too far. So, I mean, he didn't have many throws that he missed on. And, and again, I think the thing that was really impressive to me, what I really liked about Joe Milton's game is it was, Will, maybe you can even talk about this. Like there seemed to be like some type of swagger that yeah. the offense had this cool, calm, collected, no panic in them whatsoever. I mean, to me, like I always say that a quarterback, he doesn't have to put up crazy awesome numbers, but he's got to like make everybody around him better. And I thought I saw that last night. I like the way that you phrased that. I call it like you got to want to play for your quarterback. And you can see this, um, you know, in the NFL, in college, when the quarterback is, um, for, for lack of a better term, uh, an a-hole, guys mm -hmm. don't want to play hard for them. And they don't always put everything on the line. And it's just you don't see what you saw last night, right? There are other guys who, you know, your quarterback, Denard, for example, who you would do anything for because of the way – that they carry themselves day to day, that they bring it in practice. They, as you said, they get the most out of their teammates. And at least when I, you know, Denard in his junior, senior year, really understood that as a part of his job. It looks like these guys love Joe Milton, play, you know, obviously as hard as they can for him. But there was, there was a certain, there was a swagger and almost a, not an ease, but sort of a, a flow with which the offense ran that, you know, I don't think we're used to seeing on season openers under any coaching staff. It just looked polished. It looked impressive. And there was something calming about having Joe Milton at the helm, even though it was his first start. It was very impressive. He looked, you know, beyond his years. Justin, uh, you said – either in Thursday or Friday's episode, you made a pretty bold prediction that I mocked you pretty good for. And that was that Joe Milton was going to rush for like a hundred yards and have more rushing touchdowns than passing touchdowns in this game. And I'm like, Oh man, young green behind the ears, Justin getting way out in front of himself. Well, 52 yards rushing. He had the most carries of any player on the team. He did rush for a touchdown. He had a long of 23 yards. He did throw for a touchdown. So he came out even there. But you were beat. You you were excited about that. You wanted to see him as a runner. So tell me what your impressions of of, of Joe Milton were last night running the football. Yeah, you know what? He looked super comfortable, and he looked very comfortable in the pocket as well. But also, he, you know, I I used to call it uh, when Denard was playing, we'd run the Denard left, Denard right play, right? Mm -hmm. Pretty much. <laughs> and, and they they ran the Joe Milton left and Joe Milton right play last night a few times. And he was very patient. He waited for holes to open up. And then, you know what I was really impressed by? There was one play he had where he hit the corner and turned on the burners for a second. Hmm. And I thought he was going to get into the end zone. He got yep. caught a few, a few yards shy. But holy smokes, I, I was very impressed by his running ability. And I think that adds – you know, when you have now, now with Blake Corum in the backfield as well, which we weren't expecting to see as much of him as we did, they have four running backs in the backfield. They ran Hassan Haskins at a, uh, you know, with a direct snap as well. But now you have to worry about Joe Milton running the ball on the goal line too. Michigan has struggled in the red zone in the past, you know, especially in the past couple of years. And now it seems like when they got into the red zone, it was a foregone conclusion they were getting into the end zone. It was, it was unbelievable how easy they made that look. And I think that Joe Milton running the ball had a big, big uh, part of that. And so I was pretty impressed by that. Yeah. I, I did make a bold prediction. It, it was, I, 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 I was wrong in saying that he was going to have more rushing yards, but I do think that his running game had a big impact on how well, how well that offense ran last night. 
Well, you I know, think what, what, what Will said earlier, I mean, Will, you know, the, the wearing down effect. I mean, if you're a linebacker, if you're a defensive back and you've got to tackle a 6'5", 240-pounder <laughs> with speed over and over again, I mean, I know we only ran about eight times, but, you know, you start to – you really start to create a, a mindset. And, and those guys, I mean, we'll, we'll get to Ben Mason in a, in a minute here, but – um, you can start to see them kind of like hoping, like, maybe I'll just try to direct this guy out of bounds, but I don't actually want to be the guy that tackles this big man. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a, a huge part of football, and it recalls the, the Marshawn Lynch clip of the, you know, over and over and over and over, and that ultimately most guys don't want that. And you know what? He's right. Um, if you've played football, you understand it. If you haven't, you can probably think through how – Having somebody 6'5", 240 coming at you, you know, not the first time, not the second time, or even the sixth or seventh time, but, you know, into that third and fourth quarter, it's not the most fun thing to try to bring down, especially, as you said, for linebackers and for secondary players, because if you're blocking well, the D linemen who are bigger than that, they don't get a chance at them. And so you having a guy bigger than you coming at you over and over, um, you got you to gotta have something about you and have some real some real toughness to decide that you want to keep doing that. Um, and then I thought, Justin, you, you brought up a great point about, you know, sort of our red zone efficiency. I was just thinking to myself, Mike, that Lloyd would have been super proud of this game in that, <laughs> in that respect, right? We didn't settle for field goals. Um, for the most part, we didn't kill ourselves with penalties aside from really early in the game. And we got our, our butts into the end zone. So uh, that, was, that was a real high point. Um, for me, and something that I hope is a hallmark of this team, because while three points are great and I will take them when we can get them, you know, seven or, or eight is different. And uh, to be able to do that regularly, like you said, Justin, it seemed like it was a foregone conclusion. I hope that it continues to just appear to be that easy. And, and you also said we have four running backs. I, I would say we got at least five when you talk about that, that big old quarterback of ours. Five of seven in the red zone, Will, uh, and – you know, and, and they, they probably would like the other ones back. But uh, here's four of their touchdown runs were a four-yard run and a four-yard run by Hassan Haskins, a two-yard run by Joe Milton, and a five-yard run by Chris Evans. And so uh, they were really effective, um, you know, inside the 20, but certainly even, even inside the five-yard line. Uh, they, were, they were getting it. Whoever they were giving the ball to uh, was working for them. I, I wanted to ask you too, Will. Craig Rowe told me back when he was playing for Michigan that – Terrell Pryor was the hardest person he's ever had to try and tackle. And mm. he's got a similar frame to Joe Milton. So I imagine it's got to be, you know, somewhat similar. Terrell Pryor was, a, a, you know, an athletic phenomenon, especially a quarterback for Ohio State. Yeah, I, I think, you know, coming from a defensive end like yourself, when you see him coming around the corner – are you trying to dive at his legs? Are you, you know, it's not just, it's not just getting his way. You, you got to do more than that to take him down. Yeah. I mean, there's no question. And, and I'll, you know, I think I'll, Will would have gone right. I was going to say, I'll, 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 I will represent for, for D lineman everywhere and say, we're not going for anybody's legs, but I certainly understand the point. And what Craig made is, you know, Terrell Pryor was very hard to tackle. He has a very similar frame and athletic skill set as Joe Milton, but I think throwing the ball is um, night and day. Uh, there are a lot of high school quarterbacks who threw the ball better than Terrell Pryor. And, yeah. and Joe Milton looks like, you know, you could take the running away and he's still an incredibly impressive quarterback. I'm going to personally give the hardest to tackle designation to our former teammate, uh, Mr. Robinson, because it's, a, I mean, yeah, six five two forty and whatever Pryor ran four five. That's impressive. But uh, the way Denard starts starts and stops and gets going, like if you if he gets outside for a second, it's over. There is no chance of recovering, even though in practice coach demands that you run to the ball. Uh, I think I've told you this, Mike, one of the more deflating feelings was, okay, Denard's outside the pocket. He's going to run. We have to chase him and get tired. No one's going to catch him, and you got to go again the next play. Mm-hmm. Luckily on Saturdays, the other team had to deal with that. But, but man um, – I just want to see, I want to see a full healthy season from our whole team. And as I watched Joe Milton play, he looked, he looked dominant. And then I want to throw out again, uh, how about that response after we got down early and, you know, Charbonnet tied it up immediately, but how fast did he look on that? He looked fully recovered. He looked, you know, like he was running track. Yeah. 
Well, let's get into talking about the offensive line and the running backs. But first, uh, you know, this, this sponsor or this uh, podcast cannot uh, happen without our, our friends at Kapnick Insurance Group. Um, I just moved on to Kapnick uh, about three weeks ago. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's been a great group to work with already. Really friendly people. All, a lot of big Michigan football fans um, in that group. I know when I go in tomorrow that they're going to be talking about the game and want to pick my brain. And, you know, when you think about insurance, like I just got my mother and my brother to switch over to Kapnick. And they didn't do it just because like, hey, it's, it's our brother. They did it because of one of the reasons that I find when I talk to a lot of people is everybody has insurance. You're required to have insurance. If you don't have insurance, well, call me immediately. But you've got insurance because you've got to protect your family. You've got to protect your home. You've got to protect your auto. Uh, you've got to protect your business. But a lot of people have insurance. A lot of people don't have a guy or a girl. They don't have like an agent. They don't have someone they really truly trust. They don't have someone that's looking out for their best interest. They have insurance through, and I don't want to name all the companies, but you guys are smart. You see them on TV all the time. Those people work for the insurance companies. They don't work for you. Their goal is to put you in a position where you're spending money, you're buying the highest premiums uh, for home, auto, life insurance. Like they make commission off of that. That's not how it works at Kapnick. We work for you. We work for the client, not for the insurance carrier. We're your advocate. We're looking out for you and making sure that when you have a claim, when something goes wrong, you don't have to call the insurance company and try to get that 1-800 number and talk to like five people just to file your claim. You call us up and we take care of it for you. That's what we offer at Kapnick Insurance Group. You can learn much more by going to kapnick.com. If you want to work with me, uh, you can uh, reach out to me at mspath at kapnick.com. That's M-S-P-A-T-H at kapnick.com. So, Will, yeah, let's talk about that offensive line. Four new starters. Um, other than one play where I thought Ryan Hayes got, you know, bull rushed, they, they won the day. And one of the things I really like to see is – whether it's the read option or, you know, just counters and things like that, Michigan has found a way to really pull, to use like a power running game in a spread formation where they're pulling the backside guard, they're pulling the center, they're getting the tackles out in front. And as a defensive lineman, you know, one of the things that, that you know super well as a, both a defensive tackle and as a strong side defensive end that you played, if you can cut off that front side, strong side, or you, you cut off the front side and you can allow those two pulling guys to get out in front and hit the backside linebacker, maybe even get out there in a safety. That's when plays like blow up. And that's what we saw uh, in yesterday's game for Michigan. We did. And, and we even saw two guys pulling on multiple plays, which I love to see. You know, we saw the center pull as well as a right tackle pull. Um, and that creates problems for a defense. It creates problems, first of all, in leverage because you're then stressed, as you said, to make sure you do turn the ball in and, and not let them get the edge. But it also creates problems on the backside, on a cutback, as we saw a number of times. Um, Zach's long touchdown, I don't think it was double pullers, but it was, it was a puller with the inserted Ben Mason. So it's essentially, you know, same concept of let's get an extra guy. It was brilliant. We motioned Ben Mason back in. He was the insert lead blocker, and we had a pulling offensive lineman, and uh, every lineman got on their block, got their hands placed, and there was nobody there. Um, and, and so, you know, as a defender, it can be frustrating, too, because you have to play your keys. You can't just look at the ball um, because the ball will go through your gap very quickly if you're doing that, or you'll get blindsided by one of those pulling O linemen. And so to have to honor that, to have to – you know, honor that they may run it where they're pulling both of those guys is one thing. And then to have somebody like Joe Milton or to have, you know, Giles Jackson, uh, some of the speed we have out there, he could just pull it and throw the bubble. It's a problem. It's a real problem. And to watch the O-line, my, my, my buddy last night was saying, you know, I hope they, I hope they get their reward. And I said, their reward is going to be filmed tomorrow. I mean, they, mm -hmm. they got on their men you could hear it, even over the announcers. You could just hear the pads. You could hear them lock in. And then there weren't guys getting off of blocks the way that you see and making that, you know, 13-yard gain turn into a three- or four-yard gain, tripping up the running back. Um, our guys were finishing defenders, even, <laughs> even uh, Zach from the start going a little too far past the – I'm sorry, Ben. Ben makes yeah. it from the start going a little too far past the whistle. But you know what? He set a tone, and it looked like our O-lineman uh, – continue that throughout it was a it was an impressive night I would love to uh to hear what you know 
Everett or, or Hutch or some of the legends had to say about that performance. Cause again, those were, those were green, at least playing time wise, those were green offensive linemen and uh, they looked incredible. Justin, you mentioned all week, you said, Hey, you know, the reason I'm excited about this offensive line is you have so much confidence in Ed Warner, mm -hmm. uh, you know, coming out of, you know, based off your personal expectations for this game, I would imagine that they were even exceeded by the offensive line. And now you've got Michigan State coming up. Um, you know, we'll, we'll get to some of the future games here for Michigan in just a little bit. But uh, you've got to be really excited about the ceiling for this offensive line after what you saw in week one against the Gophers. You know what? If I'm Jim Harbaugh or Ward Manuel, I am going into Schembechler Hall and leaving a contract on Ed Warner's desk <laughs> this morning, yep. honestly. I mean, he, he is out – he is – exceeded every expectation we've had for him he has done things with offensive linemen that have zero experience and turned them into nfl draft picks it looks like every one of these guys andrew vistardis came in with virtually zero experience mm -hmm. in his five years and all of a sudden are he's like an unbelievable offensive lineman it's it's wild and it is something that is so awesome to see for, for michigan especially because the the offensive line is before Warner was never really a, a a bright spot for the past decade or so. So for for us to just always now feel comfortable with that offensive line, even with new with four new guys out of five, and Jalen Mayfield obviously is a is a star coming back. But holy smokes, I think that from week one now with them having that good of a performance. Once these guys get more reps, more in-game reps, they're only going to get better. And so I see this offensive line, especially with the creativity of Josh Gaddis and what you've talked about already, Will, of pulling guards and working Ben Mason on trap blocks and all that stuff. I just think that the, the sky is the limit for the offensive line in this running back room. And, you know, none of these running backs put up huge numbers. But overall, it was a very dominating performance uh, for, the, uh, for the offensive line, uh, whether it was pass protection. Because the, the other thing, talking about pass protection, outside of that first sack for Joe Milton, which I actually think he had a pretty good pocket and bailed too early. But outside yes. of that, he was super comfortable back there. And we talked about that this week as well. Is we, uh, you know, he needs to stay upright early in this game uh, for them to be, for him to be super comfortable and for them to succeed in this game and, and moving forward. They did a wonderful job of that better than I expected. And I think it's going to be getting even better and better week by week. Hey, hey Mike, to, to highlight, to highlight Justin's point on, on Ed Warner, what does that sound like? If you, if you took his statement there and just flipped offense to defense, right? He said, this guy's taking inexperienced guys, have them perform at a high level, turn them into NFL draft picks. Like that's what we've been saying about Don Brown for, you know, mm -hmm. however, however long he's been here. And if mm -hmm. we can get anywhere close to that consistently on the offensive line where you just expect that level of production, man, that would be a luxury. Well, and I tell you what I also loved about yesterday's game and, and he, he played a little bit. I mean, his, his role was like H back fullback, but they found a role for, for Ben Mason. Uh, you know, the, a year ago when Gaddis came in, they were kind of like, well, we don't, have a we don't have a fullback in this offense. Let's try to move him to defensive tackle. Obviously, you know, looking back on hindsight, you know, great effort. The guy wanted to, to be a great teammate, but it was a bad move for Michigan. Like, it didn't do anything for Michigan. They found a way. I mean, they had this entire offseason, probably more time on their hands than they wanted to, uh, you know, no spring ball all throughout the summer. And Gaddis and Harbaugh got together and said, we've got a guy who loves football. We've got a guy who will do anything for his team. We got to get this guy on the field. We've got to find a way. And, and what they did is they used him um, in that H back, a lot of times polling where he would come across the formation uh, in motion and he would get out there and serve as a lead blocker uh, for the running game. And yeah, I mean, the play early on, I mean, I agree with Kirk Herbstreit and that doesn't happen very often, but if you want to flag a guy 15 yards for essentially blocking, like not a dirty play, he didn't like take the guy and like at the end of the play, like throw him to the ground. He didn't hit someone after the whistle. He just blocked the guy for about 12 seconds and he blocked him into the sideline. Like I, I loved that. I don't, I don't mind a 15 yard, uh, you know, personal foul on that. And, and then he, he shows off that. I mean, remember his freshman year, I think he got the ball out in the flat and he like leapfrogged over somebody. We're all like, Whoa, how did this guy just do that? Here we saw it again. Like he's got more athleticism. I would, you know, 
I loved watching Khalid Hill a couple of years ago when I think he scored like eight touchdowns on yeah. uh, Heisman Hill. Yeah, I mean, he had like 10 offensive touches and had like eight touchdowns. It was a crazy number. I think you could see Ben Mason have something similar where he gets maybe one or two touches per game and, ha- and scores a touchdown on most of them. So I really love the creativity. I love the, the passes to the flat uh, really early on to Blake Corum, to Chris Evans, to get those guys involved. Um, you know, they weren't afraid to throw to the middle of the field. They threw to, you know, Giles Jackson and, and Roman Wilson and A.J. Henning, these young wide receivers across the middle. They threw to Ronnie Bell across the middle. I think you can get away with that. If we come back to Joe Milton for a second, Will, you can get away with that when, you know, we saw there were a couple of plays that we could see the, the camera angle from behind. And I thought like, ooh, that's a tight window. But when you have his arm, A, you can throw into tighter windows. And B, you're throwing with some, some level of velocity that, no offense to defensive guys, but they're not used to picking off passes like that because they're coming so hard. You might get a deflection. It might hit your fingers, but you can zip it through somebody um, because it's, it's that type of arm strength and that type of confidence. So, I mean, there's, there's really not a throw on this field that he can't make, and we saw that on display uh, last night. We did, and, you know, I think – Gaddis would probably say he hopes that he doesn't have to fit into those types of windows consistently, even though Joe Milton's very capable of doing that. Um, it's a luxury we have, you know, when you can run the ball like we do or like we did, um, a lot of things open up, right? And then you have a quarterback who can make those throws and you have even more available to you. But I will say that we should have, you know, a talent and scheme advantage on nearly every team we play. And so the times when we will have to fit those types of throws in, I hope we save for the big moments when we really need them, when maybe the talent advantage isn't as obvious or it's more neutral. Um, Because we, as Kirk Herbstreit, actually, no, this was a different game. I think Brady Quinn was talking about it. But the way offensive football is now, you can essentially make sure that you are always winning the numbers game, whether you're running into a reduced front um, with less numbers in the box or you're getting the ball out quickly in space because they have more in the box. Um, we have that ability now with the weapons we have on the field. And so it is a it is a luxury and I hope one that we don't have to use too often to see Joe fit it into those tight windows like Stafford and some of those NFL guys do on Sundays. Yeah, absolutely. Great point, Will. Uh, hey, you know, another um, shout out to uh, a great new sponsor here for the Stadium of Maine podcast. And Kudos to Justin for going out there and getting this. He's, uh, he wants to prove himself, and Justin, well done. Um, and in Ann Arbor Institution, they're a big supporter of WTKA, uh, Sam and Irish Show. They've been with WTK for a long time, uh, and that is Lewis Jewelers, uh, the best jeweler in Ann Arbor. In fact, my wife and I both have our wedding rings uh, from Lewis Jeweler. And why did we go to Lewis Jeweler? Well, they've got a great selection. They've got a great price, and something I really appreciate nobody is is getting paid on commission and why does that matter because they're not trying to upcharge you to something a little bit more outside of your price range okay they're not they're not taking you from you go in there asking for a Chevy uh, uh, a Chevy cruise and they're giving you the Chevy Impala they're not they're not making you go up a couple thousand dollars when you're buying uh, that that jewelry for for the missus for uh, for your girlfriend maybe for will when he gets engaged here pretty soon um, and so <laughs> That's what I love about Lewis Jewelers and, and, and Keith, uh, the owner, I mean, is a world-class guy, huge Michigan football fan, supports the Michigan program. Uh, just a, a really good place to shop. They've just upgraded. They have upgraded. They went from a smaller facility. They're going this gigantic facility now on Stadium Boulevard, the old quarter bistro. So check them out at lewisjewelers.com. All right, Will, I know you've been wanting to, you've been chomping here. Uh, we're like 35 minutes into this podcast. We have not mentioned the defense yet for Michigan. <laughs> this is your former position. And, Will, I'm going to preface this by saying that in today's college football, and Nick Saban came out and said this before the uh. game yesterday, you don't <laughs> win with defense. You win with offense. And so giving up 24 points yesterday, I know there were a lot of yards. I would have liked to have seen them shore up the rush defense, which I'm sure you're going to talk about here. I don't want to see them giving up 150 yards to one guy. But I think Michigan's going to win games by scoring 35, 42 points and giving up mid-20s. I'm okay with that. And I thought yesterday, I mean, yeah, there's a couple things I like back here and there, and we'll certainly get into talking about the secondary. But I thought yesterday was a pretty damn good performance by the defense compared to what the game is, how the game is being played in 2020. 
You know, Mike, um, <laughs> I agree. It is a it was a double heartbreaker because a uh, you know hearing that you can't you don't win championships just by having a dominant defense. You know that breaks my heart a little bit. But then agreeing with Nick Saban also breaks my heart to an extent. <laughs> uh, so no, I, I, I heard that and I thought he was spot on and um, you know, the way football is played now, I know defensive coaches who teach turnovers more than way more than in the past and even spend more time on it than, you know, certain technique stuff as in guys are running with the ball. You see it in the NFL all the time. It's impressive where they can just punch it with an offensive player on the run in possession and knock it out. Um, but just that idea of scoring has been made, I don't want to say so easy, but there's a lot of advantages for the offense to where if you get a turnover, um, you know, you have that much more likely chance of winning. You put that much more pressure on them because it's hard to stop an offense. And so what we did yesterday, I actually really uh, came away encouraged, believe it or not, especially you said in this day and age, we looked like we flew around. Um, we take for granted at this point how technically sound Don Brown defenses are, but I watched the line, of course, and you watch our guys come off, place their hands, and if you just watch the line of scrimmage and what happens to the line of scrimmage, we do not get moved backwards um, the way that lots of teams do and the way that you would expect if you're coaching offensive football, something to happen. So between our fits and then our speed and just the way that they, you know, they didn't look like it was their first game aside from a few plays. I came away encouraged. I don't know what you guys thought, but it was a lot of new names to me as well. Um, seeing my man Donovan Jeter score a touchdown from the D line <laughs> position. And I go, what's better than that. Right. But how about that hit to, to mm-hmm. cause that fumble too. Oh right. Was that Barrett? Who, who was that hit? Yeah, it was that was Justin who picked a uh, defensive MVP, Michael Barrett this past uh, Friday for our yeah, Justin. Yeah. This guy, no, right here. It was, uh, yeah. I, I still think Tanner Morgan is waking up this morning, like, oh my god, that hit hurt so bad. (laughs) Yeah, well, he was he was outstanding, and you know, Will, I I was again. Here's the stat that I look at. I look at big plays allowed by Michigan because this is a game of big plays. This is a game of. Um, you know, teams are going to get them. Minnesota had four plays of 20 yards or more in yesterday's game. You know, in, in three years ago, Don Brown would have like had a fit about that. Nowadays, like that's the norm. Alabama is giving up a little bit more than four yard, four plays of 20 yards or more per game right now. Like that's just what college football is. And if you went back and if you go back and look at that game yesterday, Rashad Bateman had one pretty late. Like, like tell me the, the 20 yard plays. Did any of those 20-yard plays that Minnesota had have a dramatic impact on the game? Not yesterday it didn't. Maybe in the future against Wisconsin or Indiana or Ohio State it will. But it wasn't anything that stood out that that's what you know, dictated uh, a big momentum shift for, for the Golden Gophers. So I was pretty happy overall. I, wanna do, I do want to ask you, Will, because this is your position, defensive line. Uh, they did give up a lot of yards rushing. And I, had a, and I saw a lot of people on Twitter kind of freaking out about the defensive tackle play and say that they're getting pushed off the ball. You just said that they weren't. They weren't getting pushed back. So give me your analysis of the defensive line against the run, their fits, and how they, you know, did they do a good enough job occupying the blockers they're supposed to to create opportunities for their linebacker core? Well, you know, it's a good question, and I wouldn't be a lineman if I didn't preface this by saying I want to see the end zone copy um, (laughs) before Mm -hmm. any of my comments – put them in, in cement, make them stand. But I thought that our defensive line, again, especially being aside from, from Aiden, Carlos got some experience, Quiddy, but, you know, they came off the ball. They, for the most part, had good fits. They looked physical and they weren't getting moved. Yeah, guys get double teamed, but if you get double teamed and you hold your ground and, and take those two to the ground, there's no hole there by, you know, by definition of it. And so I liked what our D line did. Um, also, like you said, offensive football is different these days. And so in the old days where getting, you never want to get blown off the ball period, but if you, if you get moved a little bit and they run for four yards and then they run for six yards and then they run for three yards, like, and they have to execute a 10, 11, 12 play drive, guess what? There's a greater chance of a mistake, a penalty, a turnover. And so you've seen defensive coaches sort of go to this approach, um, a former 
a former coach of mine who I won't name now for where he coaches, but he bought into this scheme uh, of, you know, bend, but don't break, right. You can, they can move the ball between the twenties. Um, and even if they get a field goal, you know, not great, but better than a touchdown. I thought that we played that type of football, even on the big Bateman catch, right. Mm-hmm. Dax, Dax was right there in the past. That could have been a 70 yard touchdown. Mm-hmm. Dax, Dax stopped it for whatever, you know, 30 yards, whatever it was, but right in its tracks. So do we have improvement to make? Absolutely. Especially, you know what, when it comes to teams that have elite receivers all around across the board, um, you're going to need the D lineman to get there sooner because you can't ask guys to cover for that long. But for a first game of the year, I don't know about you guys, but I was, I was really pleased um, not only with run fits, but also we got a good amount of pressure. Sometimes mm-hmm. it was from blitzers, but that only happens – uh, when you do, when everybody else hits their gap on a blitz, you don't just blitz and all of a sudden you have pressure and it just works because you blitz. There is incredibly detailed scheme to blitzing and where each guy has to fit. And we were getting on the edge of our guys. We were making it so that they couldn't block two with one. And therefore we were getting home and getting pressure. I want to see the film again. Um, I haven't watched a second time here. Uh, but one of the things that I, I, I thought I noticed in just first glance uh, was Michael Baird early in the game, monster. They probably weren't totally prepared for him. And what did, I, what did you start to see later in the game? If, if, I, if my memory, if my, you know, my analysis is, is correct, Will and Justin, I think I saw them start to pay attention to, to Michael Barrett in the second half. And what all of a sudden happened, Quiddy Page just went nuts. Mm-hmm. And so that is what is going to be a challenge for teams going forward is it's not, you know, with this defensive line, with Hutchinson, with Quiddy Pay, uh, with, with how they move those guys around, with what they do with Michael Barrett, with Cam McGrone coming, like you're not going to be able to focus on one guy. Like, okay, if we stop him, we're going to be okay. Or even two guys. Don Brown, is, that's one of the things I always give him credit for is he's really smart about moving guys around. And he's really smart about saying like, okay, they now have to prepare for Michael Barrett coming out of halftime. Let's use him as a decoy. Let's use him as someone that they're paying attention to. And let's use my other guy on stunts on my other guy and lining him up in favorable situations to, to create one-on-one matchups. Yeah. I just wanted to add in while we were talking about the defense is I, after the game, I, I checked the stats and I saw Rashad Bateman had nine catches for uh, over a hundred yards, 101 yards. And I was surprised at that because he pretty much seemed like a non-factor outside of a couple of those deep throws. And so it, it was for, for something that we were talking about all week that we were very nervous about, concerned that this brand new secondary it, without Ambry Thomas, how are they going to keep Rashad Bateman in check? But wow, I thought that secondary did a great job. Um, they, they struggled a little bit early, but then I, I thought that Jamon Green made some really great plays, um, you know, later in the game and Dax Hill as well. Uh, Brad Hawkins, all of them really did well. Were you guys also surprised at how, how much Minnesota struggled to throw the football against this newer secondary? Well, I would say that they, they did. I mean, they even got the, the, the one big play that they had down the field. I thought they kind of got away with a push-off. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I, I guarantee you that if that was Nico Collins <laughs> yeah. in, in, in uh, State College, they would have called an offensive pass interference on him. Um, so I, I thought they were pretty good overall. Um, you know, Vincent Gray and, and Javon Green are still fairly, fairly young guys. You know, obviously Javon Green, um, you know, this is his first time playing. I think when they took Dax Hill, or I think Dax Hill got hurt, and we're going to need to learn a little bit more about that. I think Jim Harbaugh said he left with an undisclosed injury. I mean, all of a sudden you saw Makari Page out there. You saw some Sammy Faustin out there uh, at the safety spot. I mean, I thought Brad Hawkins, I'm sure you noticed this, uh, Will, Brad Hawkins got banged up at one point, and he was, like, not coming off the field because he realized, like, I'm the experienced guy here. Yep. I don't care if I have a cramp. I don't care if my legs hurts a little bit. Like, I got to stay on the field for my team right now. And he did, and I'm sure he wasn't as effective after that, but he wasn't coming off the field. Um, I, I thought they were, I thought they were good. I'd probably give them like a, a, a B um, in the first game. I think it helped that, you know, as the game unfolded, the defensive line got nastier and nastier and Quiddy Pay was like, Hey, I'm yes. going to wreck these guys single-handedly here. Yep. Um, which all of a sudden gets into a quarterback's head. The more times you get hit and especially if you're getting hit by the same guy. Now you're like, if you get hit and I think Quiddy Pay had back-to-back sacks and might've even had like 
three out of four plays where he created the tackle for loss, all of a sudden Tanner Morgan's going to be looking for, for number 19 before every play. And if you can get inside a quarterback's head just that little bit, Will, you know better than anybody, he is now off his game a little bit. He's rushing himself. He, he can screw up his, his, his drops. I mean, that's, that is like heaven for a defensive lineman. I'm inside this guy's head. No question. And I just – I'll ask you guys and then I'll comment on this, but did, did Tanner Morgan ever really look comfortable last night, especially Never. when you compare to what Joe no. Milton looked like? No. Right. And, and so, first of all, I mean, think about – being asked to play quarterback and and even if you've never done it in your life all the things that they do on a play let alone get the ball to where it's supposed to go if you are being conditioned that hey before I execute this and get the ball where it's supposed to go there's a good chance I'm going to get rocked by one of these defenders um, you're going to be a little bit timid a little bit trepidatious about the way that you execute so a I thought we did a great job of never letting them get comfortable, never letting Tanner Morgan get comfortable. That I give credit to Don Brown for, and, and of course the guys, but I could watch Don, Blau, Don Brown blitz schemes, uh, you know, forever. It's, it's, a, it's a thing of beauty. But I thought you guys both made points that really speak to the overall talent level because, and I'll, I'll use myself as, as an example of how things have changed, right? When I was playing, we did a very good job in 2011 of, getting getting me to take on the double team so that guys like Mike Martin and Van Bergen could, and Craig could get one-on-ones. But now we have across the board. My point being, if I got a one-on-one, I might not win that. We have guys now across the board who you can't single team them. Um, Quiddy took that over in the second half, right? You said they started paying more attention to Barrett. He was getting home. Um, sidebar here who wouldn't want to play viper for michigan god yeah if i'm a high school defender and i see i want to go play viper for don brown at michigan but but we have guys now where okay so you're gonna you're gonna shift the offensive line or you're gonna slide protect and try and pick up the edge blitz we've been bringing we have guys aiden's gonna win one-on-ones you know donovan's getting home obviously quitty was hugely impactful and i love what i saw from carlo kemp honestly Mm -hmm. um I, I'm impressed by him. I've been impressed by him. Quick story on Carlo. He has no idea about this either, but uh, I worked for Coach Hoekstaff after, you know, 2014, and I was charged with uh, looking into all the defensive linemen for recruiting purposes. And on that, in that class of 2016 was, my top player was Nick Bosa, unfortunately. Um, I came across Devin Bush in that, in that uh, scouting and that film search. But there's a, there was a linebacker from Colorado named Carlo Kemp, who I put in my notes, quote, should be DL. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it was amazing to see him not only come to Michigan, I thought this would be cool, but to see him with the quickness that he has, I mean, he's not your traditional defensive tackle, but he's very sound. He's very strong. Um, and so if you have, you have Carlo along with the guys we've already mentioned, and then in the back end, there were some names that I wasn't as familiar with after the injuries happened. And like you said, Mike, it did seem like there was a big drop off. That Mm -hmm. to me is a sign of not just an increase in talent, but also getting them prepared to play by the coaches. So not to knock any of the guys that I played with, obviously I loved, you know, I loved our team and and we had a great uh, 2011 campaign at least, but to see the overall talent level be where it is to where, you know, Oh God, Denard goes down or, Mike Martin mm-hmm. goes down and the next guy up isn't really a drop off. That's something we haven't truly had in a long time. Yeah. You, you said it perfectly. And, and I was, my, I was watching the game with my father-in-law and he kept on saying, God, the speed. And then he would say like, who's that now, Michael, who's that in the game? And I actually needed to, <laughs> yeah. I actually needed to, to look up like, you know, normally, you know, as a member of the media and, and now just doing the sports co- podcast, like, I would normally would know that roster inside and out. And like, I was seeing numbers and I'm like, all right, who's number 27? Who's number seven? Who's number nine? Like I had to go look at those, look those up. And those guys, you know, were they, was anybody as good as Dax Hill? Probably not. But as you said, Will, I mean, there wasn't this significant drop off to the next guy and how much, I mean, to get that type of experience on the road against a top five team, I mean, that's going to help them immensely uh, going forward here. Uh, Michael Barrett beast. I can't wait to see what he does. Uh, for an encore um, but again maybe it's if you're Michigan State if you're Mel Tucker maybe you're saying like okay we got to really block this guy and so maybe all of a sudden Cameron Grone uh, maybe Josh Ross maybe 
you know, Aiden Hutchinson ends up having the big game next week because they're paying attention to, to Michael Barrett. But with his athleticism and his speed, I think he's going to find a way to keep on making plays, uh, which is going to be very exciting for, for Michigan fans. So, guys, I want to take this in a, in a different direction. Gosh, we could talk about the Michigan game for probably another hour here, but let's talk about what happened in the Big Ten overall. I actually didn't watch any other – uh, any other college football besides the Big Ten? Like I was just focused on Nebraska, Ohio State, Michigan State, Rutgers, Penn State, Indiana. And Will, you've played a lot of football. I have watched a lot of football. I don't know that I have ever seen a two-point conversion in overtime uh, to to upset a, a top ten team come down to what is probably like the tip tip of the nose of the football in that Indiana game. It was amazing. I mean, I was, we were sitting here watching the game, just blown away, jumping up off of our couches uh, because that was just an incredible, incredible finish. And, and you know what? I actually, a little selfishly, I love that Indiana for two reasons. One, not a huge fan of Penn state. Don't like James Franklin, but also if they, if they lose that game, I think in two weeks when they play Michigan, they're spoiling for that upset. But now they're going to have to deal with a little bit of, hey, we just had our big upset. We're going to be ranked this week. All of a sudden now they're getting a lot more attention. Yeah, and I don't know. All right, I need to get this out of the way and say I in no way have sympathy for Penn State uh, whatsoever. I'm happy that they lost. And, and getting that out of the way, um, <laughs> I don't know how you watch that and don't call that ball short now again i'm mm. happy with how it ended i also thought james franklin um got potentially what he deserved for getting the game to overtime in the first place by not just taking a knee um that was uh, for those who weren't watching penn state was up by one they could have kneeled the clock out i think they were on the indiana 20 yard line or so they kept running the football and their indiana was smart and they let them score in order to have a chance to get the ball back be down eight and take it to overtime and penn state with their uh the, the way that you might assume they would decided not to kneel the ball and they had a running back run untouched up the middle into the end zone Indiana came right back down and tied it up and took it to overtime. But that two-point conversion, I don't know what you guys think, but I saw it over and over, and I said, like, wait, they're, they're still reviewing this? Like, it just looked clear to me, like, the ball was down. You know, honestly, how I felt about it was whatever was called on the field at the time, it was not going to be overturned. That's yeah. so, it's so close that I think that it, there's no way to, to actually, you know, definitively see if it was across or not. So, and I actually think that, the, you know, in real time when a player hits the pylon like that, it should be called on the field a touchdown. So I think the, the referee made the right of call on the field and then it was just so close that you really can't overturn it. I think that no, even if he would have called it no touchdown on the field, they still don't overturn it. So either way, whatever is on the field is going to stand there, in my opinion. Yeah, you're probably that, right. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're probably right. When I first saw it live, I thought the ball actually came out of his hand before. Yeah. But in, in seeing it in slow motion, it was either that it hit the pylon first or that it hit the ground and then came, you know, then hit the pylon. But – Either way, uh, I think they got the outcome they deserved because they had the yeah. game in hand and you go into victory formation and you enjoy the best play in football, but they can decided we, that's not what they wanted to do. Can we talk about the onside kick, though? What the well, heck was that? I, I think went from watching the replays, Tom Allen was not expecting it at all. Like, I think his kicker screwed up. Um, I don't know what he said after the game, but I would imagine he probably didn't throw his kicker under the bus. But I, I think that the – I think the kicker screwed up either – trying to squib it and just hit, hit the ground poorly or didn't quite know the situation, like almost kind of thought like, hey, I'm going out there to recover an onside kick to win this game and just, just for whatever had, reason had a brain fart because there is no good reason. Like that is one of the – that would be one of the worst coaching decisions I've ever seen if you decide you, – you, you tie the game up uh, 28-28 and you decide to onside kick it with like 20 seconds to go and give the other team a chance to win it. No, that would have been, I mean, you like, Will, like, very rarely do your coaches probably come into film room the next day and, like, apologize to the team. But if that was a legit 
coaching decision. Like you'd have to go in there and just like beg forgiveness from, from your 115 man roster. Yeah. I don't know um, how that transpires in the building the next day, if that was actually intentional and not a mistake, because how do your players look at you and believe that you have the interest of winning in mind, if that's the call you make. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, well, great, great for Indiana. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll see Michigan play them in a couple of weeks. Uh, and yeah, let's see how they respond to all of a sudden being ranked and, and Hey, being ahead of Penn state and uh, Michigan state in the standings uh, after, after week one, uh, gentlemen, I want to, I want to finish out here, give Will a little bit of a platform. Um, you know, we're looking forward to having Will Heinegger join us uh, every Sunday uh, to talk about uh, Michigan's previous game here, but but Will, earlier in the day, Ohio State, Nebraska, and there was no chance that Nebraska was going to win this one, uh, in my opinion. But, you know, they started getting called for targeting, and it, you know, they got players kicked out of the game. and It just it, it spiraled out of control, and I know that this is a real big thing for you, that uh, the targeting calls in college football, I thought they were going to, you know, I, I know they did change where you don't have to leave the field to play anymore, but I thought they were going to come up with a subjectivity to it where you can e either eject a guy or not, or, or give it a 15 yarder or maybe a 10 yarder or something like that. And they just decided to like kind of leave it like it was. And I, I think that was a mistake by college football. You know, um, I'm going to try and do this with a, a level head and not get too heated. I just think targeting is the worst rule and the worst punishment, the most uh, unfair in impactful punishment in the game to get disqualified First of all, people don't realize what that means for the team in the sense of only during the week of preparation, only the ones and the twos, only the starters and the backups get reps um, against what is the scout team, which is mimicking, obviously, the opponent. And so when you kick out the starter, the third string guy becomes the second string guy who has not really taken reps in, in that week of, of preparation. They've taken the reps as the scout team. And so I think it's a safety issue on that end. It's not talked about enough, but just from a competitive play standpoint, my goodness, as a defender, um, the two ejections yesterday that ended up uh, hurting Nebraska, you know, I don't think they probably would have pulled it out, but they both, in my opinion, were within the realm of like the most likely thing the defender would do based on the play they were not egregious by any means. Um, one of them was simply like a tap of the helmet. He just happened to sort of, he was almost looked like he rolled his ankle and was trying to get a piece of the ball carrier. And so he leaned his head back to the left and ended up making a little helmet to helmet contact. It was one of the lightest hits you will see. The other one uh, is just a full speed. You guys can watch it for yourself. I thought Brady Quinn uh, bless his heart. I thought Brady Quinn did a good job of saying, what do you want him to do college football? Like if you're this defender, what is he supposed to do other than put his shoulder down the way he did and go for the chest? And the fact that yes, within physics of football, their helmets might make some contact. Like you're going to eject the guy from the game. And it just, I don't know, Mike, it takes me back. I've seen I think the one that, that got me going on this was uh, it was like a Notre Dame pit game a couple of years ago. And, and the quarterback rolls out, decides to scramble and the, you know, six, one quarterback ducks his head and the six, six Notre Dame lineman trying to make a tackle um, ends up squatting and their helmets hit and they call mm -hmm. targeting. The guy tries to run over the defensive lineman. They call targeting. And just to me, to kick a guy out of the game is such a swing, especially depending on the player, right, um, is such a swing. I, they got to do something about the targeting rule. It's either got to be so egregious that everybody knows there should be an ejection or there's a 15-yard penalty. It can't be where you're having guys getting ejected for doing what is literally the most likely thing a defender would do on the play. Yeah, I think, I think intent needs to be part of the rule. And I agree with you, Will. I mean, you know, I, I think they're trying to take the subjectivity out of it and say, like, hey, we don't want an official to have to, like, guess whether or not this guy meant to do this. But as you said, like, it's pretty clear. Like, when you know when a guy is just lighting someone up that's trying to, you know, the old um, whatever Launching. it was. Yeah. Oh, jacked, yeah, jacked up. Jacked up or like that. Like, you know when a guy's doing that. I, I think the one that, that got me, and I, I was a couple years ago, 2017, 
Um, and I think it was like the first, it was the first game against Florida and Devin Bush, I believe was maybe a freshman or a sophomore at the time. He was on special teams and he like dove for the guy's legs. And as the, he was diving for the guy's leg, the guy like fell, like tripped, yes. went down and Devin Bush like hit him in the helmet. Mm-hmm. And like they, they, I think they actually didn't call targeting, which was, which didn't make sense because Based by definition on what they it do. was. Right. But I was like, how, how are you like going to fault the player? He's trying to dive at the guy's legs. As he's trying to dive at the guy's legs, the guy falls down and like he, his helmet gets into the path. I'm like, that's just, that's just awful. So I agree with you, Will, that the, the, the rule needs to be changed. It's not going to get changed for 2020. So this is not the last time we're going to talk about it. Um, right. But it, it, it's, 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 a, it's a black mark on college football. It honestly is. And I understand the intent. I know that they want to protect players. I'm all about that. But they've just gone too far with it. Well, I've, I've got a question for you, too, because I've actually had this argument with some of my friends about the rule and about just targeting in general. And I say you don't, people don't understand how fast these guys are moving. Everyone's going 100 miles an no hour. No concept. All, all in different, you know, different directions. There's a, 22 guys on the field coming from all over the place. It is impossible for – a guy for guys to, you know, stop their body if they see a helmet go down on the other side. And some of my friends have said, no, these are the best athletes in the world. They, you know, they can control their bodies like that. And I I just don't see, there's no way when you're, you're playing at game speed to really control your body when you don't know what the other guy is doing. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, especially when you are playing defense, your mindset is to tackle the ball carrier. Mm-hmm. And so there is the attacking part of that. And then there is the, as I'm actually doing it and executing the tackle, however, I'm going to react and sort of defend myself. If he puts his shoulder down or puts his helmet down or, you know, whatever it may be. And so it's hard enough being up front on the defensive line and reacting to a ball carrier and still trying to get him down. I cannot stress enough. And I don't even think I can put words to just how difficult it can be on the back end in the secondary, when you have a skill position guy running the football, catching the football to, to just even get your hands on him to just even have two hand touch is a challenging thing with these skill athletes we're seeing at this level of football. But then to think, okay, that skill athlete sees the defender coming is going to put his head down or put his shoulder down. And to think that the defender who decided half a second ago, you know, where he's going to go and make the tackle, because guess what? The offensive player can change direction. They're allowed to go a different direction. So the defender is reacting to that. And within the split second, and I think replay makes a makes it a problem because people assume you can you can slow it down like that in real life. Right, but right. but to assume that a guy who is moving as fast as he can while being under control um, and also reacting to one of the best athletes, right? As we said, some of the best athletes in the world. To think that he can adjust that quickly, he is going to hurt himself trying to do that. I promise you, you will hurt yourself trying to do that. And so you see defenders now, even the ones that were called targeting, you see them try and turn their shoulders into it. Uh, I think it was amazing that the Michael Barrett, uh, you know, Jeter defensive touchdown, that that hit didn't get, that that he was so clean with it based on what they're calling. I don't think it was targeting. I'm just impressed that, hey, you know, he put his shoulder down like a lot of defenders do, but he didn't end up getting called for targeting. So I, you know, I can't stand it. Mike, you brought up that example a couple years ago, and it made me think of, wasn't there one where, like, didn't Joe Bolden or one of our backers get pushed from behind Correct. and end up calling for targeting? Yeah. Like, yep, like that's did. the type of thing where that's Michigan state. I think. Yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. changing the outcome of the game. You're changing the health and safety aspect of it on the back end, which people don't talk about enough. So, you know, I don't know. I thought Ryan day might say something and maybe he will uh, because, you know, after the Clemson game, how, how he was very vocal about it uh, with their, their Sean Wade, I think got, got ejected for a a blitz and hit the quarterback. So yesterday it benefited them. I thought it would have been the perfect time to say, yep, I still hate the rule, even though it benefited us. Let's look at it. Let's change it. But, you know, I'll get off my soapbox for now. I think uh, it's a major problem and I hope it's something that college football looks at. 
All right. Great stuff, guys. Really appreciate it. Uh, a lot of fun talking about a big win over Minnesota, I'm sure. I think we're all thinking we'll be talking about something similar next week, a big win over Michigan State. Uh, but we'll have a couple more podcasts uh, coming up this week to, to preview the game. Um, you know, hopefully looking forward to some, some other great guests, uh, Devin Gardner and Ruben Riley this week. Uh, Will, thanks very much for joining us on your, on your Sunday morning. Um, and great thoughts. We look forward to talking to you again next week. Awesome, you guys. It was great to be here. Great to see that win. Uh, looking forward to listening this week, and I hope we're sitting in the same place when I talk to you a week from now, uh, sitting at 2-0. and up. Thanks again for joining us on the Stadium in Maine podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Stadium in Maine Pod or Stadium Maine Pod, as well as on Instagram. Follow Michael Spath at Michael Spath ITH on Twitter. I am Justin Rowe92 on Twitter. Will, do you want to plug your uh, social media here real quick? Uh, not my own, but I will say that I do a podcast for Michigan Medicine. It's called The Mental Minute with Michigan Medicine. Uh, it's a mental health podcast. We try and bring experts and deliver mental health content in relatable, colloquial ways. So you can find that on Apple, uh, iTunes, anywhere that you get your podcast, The Mental Minute with Michigan Medicine. Awesome. Go check that out and uh, give us a, a like and a subscribe and a review if you haven't already. And with that, we will see you tomorrow.